Welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. And you can sign up and get all of that, get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link. Or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better on the sh- maybe it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always greatly appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to talk about Joe Biden, uh, his poll numbers, or really the latest poll numbers to hit for him, which are not great, uh, as well as his political opposition, and more specifically, the weakness that he has now, and how his specific weaknesses are showing up and emboldening our geopolitical foes abroad, namely Russia and China, and how they are sensing that he is weak at the moment, and therefore the United States is weak, and how they are exploiting that right now, or at least appearing as if they're going to exploit that. So that's what we're going to get into here in the show. So we'll just jump right in here. So the latest numbers for Biden, and I've pulled them here so I can sort of go through some of these. Uh, the Over the weekend, the biggest poll that got released was the, the ABC Washington Post poll. Just flat out awful. It's one of his worst yet. Um, it had his approval, so people who are approving of the job that Joe Biden is doing, that only constitutes 38% of the country. This poll uh, is his second worst since the USA Today poll, which had him underwater by 21 points. This one has him underwater by 19 points. And there's just no way to really shake how bad this is. So you have him underwater. You have uh, this had the Republicans winning the generic ballot. So if you just ask that person, are you do you want to vote for a generic Republican or a generic Democrat? No names attached. Uh, Republicans were leading by ten points in this poll. Uh, so uh, easily his worst, one of his worst polls. Uh, obviously, it was the worst one that was released over the weekend or going into the weekend by a mile. Um, this also dipped the averages. So now Joe Biden in the real clear politics average of polls is sitting at 42% approval if you average all the polls together and 52.7% disapprove. So negative 10, almost negative 11 points there underwater. Uh, that 42% is the support in real clear politics is the lowest uh, point he's hitting the polls, and that 42% mark, he's hovered above that just a little bit, between 42 and 43 for a while here. Um, that 42% line is sort of a support line where his support hasn't crashed below that yet, uh, but he's testing that at the moment. And you get any more polls like this ABC one where you're showing people at 38%, he's going to crash through that 42% pretty quickly. Uh, because that's four points under the averages right now. So it's a pretty significant reading for one of these major polls. I mean, if you, you can look at some of the ones where people consider um, more Republican, a, a pollster like Rasmussen, 
uh, he's performing better in those polls than he is some of these large mainstream ones. So, uh, and in ABC News, Washington Post, it's a good poll. I generally think they trend a little left. And if this is what they're showing, that's pretty negative for Biden. Um, I take this seriously, primarily because this is more in line with what happened in in Virginia, New Jersey. And those are far more blue states. I, I was seeing some some other readings, some other some other polls over the weekend, and uh, this thirty eight percent general. If you go into some of the the battleground states, Joe Biden was hitting thirty three percent. So these are your Arizonas, your North Carolinas. Uh, I think they had Ohio maybe included in there, but and maybe a Georgia. Um, he's only hitting thirty three percent. That's the thing about these national polls. Um, whatever his national numbers are, you can guarantee that the battleground polls are even worse. And when the Republicans won in 2010, they only had like six, seven point leads in the generic ballot. If they have close to an 11, 10 to 11 point lead, you know, coming and going close on double of what they had in some of these prior wave elections. You're talking a massive wave away from Democrats. The likes of which, I mean, I, there's there are certain limitations of how far Republicans can gain in the House just due to, you know, basic things like redistricting, how some of these dist- things are built in, in, you know, blue states. There are just some upper bound limits that you would expect Republicans to hit. And since things are already pretty evenly divided in the House, there's not a ton of room to grow. Um, I mean, maybe they win 50 to 60 seats. That that seems, it's not that the poll numbers might not be there. It's just there might not be that many seats for them to win in the House. Um, when they hit the, when they won those big waves in 94 and 2010, there were these big, they, they had a lot of room when they had to come back. Less so here. So really, when you're looking at these types of numbers, what it's telling you is that the Senate is going to be the true battleground. And this is where you're going to see some shockers where people who we would not normally think would have been competitive are all of a sudden going to be competitive. That's where these numbers are. These are going to redefine what it means to be a battleground state. Because if you have, if Joe Biden is sitting here in a weak position of nationally of 38%, in a state like Georgia, he is going to be at 33%. He's going to be closer to that 30% because that is not a blue state. Right now, he may be a little purplish, but you know, the statewide races underneath the presidential stuff are going to have that slight red tilt here. And you give them this much boost, it's going to turn back to a pretty decently solidly red state. So you're not going to look at a state like Georgia like a swing state. You're not going to look at a state like Arizona like a swing state. You're, I mean, places like Nevada, where Democrats have built-in advantages, those aren't going to be swing states. So uh, this is just just brutal. Uh, and if you look at the, the the real clear politics average on the generic ballot, right now Republicans have a 0.7-point lead. They are at 44.1 versus Democrats 43.4. Uh, if you look at that 43.4 and compare it to the real clear politics average of Biden, where he's at that 42, uh, right now with it, if you look put those two together, it's suggesting that a Democrat could maybe slightly, slightly outperform Joe Biden. Um that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. You may get it in a deep blue district, but you're not going to get it in a general district. 
or anything that's up. up. So Joe Biden, real ceiling here is at 42. And if that's where Democrats are, I mean, you may have these these polls that say, well, you know, it's very close. Democrats are only hitting about 44%. The Republicans are under that, so that gives Democrats a slight edge. What that's really telling you, uh, if Democrats are around 44 and they're saying, well, you know, Republicans are around the same thing, is that there's there's a much larger contingent of undecideds who are sitting in the middle who can be pulled either way. Because, you know, if both parties are around 44 and 43 I mean, that's 87 points altogether. That's about 13, 12 to 13 points there where they're not falling for a generic Republican or generic Democrat. That's a pretty big swing, and that can push Republicans over. And, you know, 12, 13 points, that's exactly the swing that we saw in Virginia and New Jersey. So uh, I think you have to look at some of these numbers and start saying, okay, well, what happened in 2021 was pretty bad, and it is pretty easy to see these situations where Republicans can be competitive in places where we normally would not think that they're competitive. Uh, and you have to remember here, there's no, you know, this is the, there's no huge news story that's driving the thing every day. I mean, when you remember when Afghanistan first hit, that was it in the news. It was day and night what was happening. Right now, they, I mean, you have inflation. I mean, no doubt. I mean, the major issues here are, are, infla- are in Afghanistan, inflation. You have the supply chain shortages. There's the occasional border flare-up. And then you have the big debates in Congress over the legislation here. I'm going to get into a new issue that's going to come up for 2022, I think. But these aren't a drumbeat where you wake up and you're looking for the next thing. It's not like the pandemic where you're waking up looking for that next thing. Um these are just this this is not something where Biden is suffering because of some major news story is driving his approval numbers now. This is because people are feeling the cumulative effects of his presidency and saying he's a failing across the board. He's failing in everyday things. So you're looking at things like Afghanistan was the first thing. Inflation was already ongoing, but now it's continuing that drumbeat and getting louder. Same as for the supply chain stuff. Uh, border, those, those stories flare in and out. Congress, they, they've, that's going to become an issue here as they try to figure out whether they can get anything. That pandemic's always in the background. Two, it, but the big thing, I think, because what these poll numbers are telling you, when, you, when you're looking at a president who's 19, maybe 20 points underwater in approval in his own country, where he doesn't have as much say with his own party, in this case Democrats, and the opposition is really opposing him, uh, you're looking at a weak president. It's crazy to think about it, but in some respects he's really approaching a lame duck status because what's going to happen here, we have this congressional debate here over the Build Back Better plan that he's got in Congress that he wants to pass, and he's got until the end of this year, really, and maybe maybe January or at the latest early February, and that's being super generous here, to pass this piece of legislation. And then he's effectively going to become a lame duck in Congress because no one's going to want to pass anything or stick their neck out of him at the rate that his administration is imploding. And so this is a real weakness. And that brings us to the main point that I wanted to hit on today, which is foreign policy weakness, because weakness domestically can project weakness abroad. And that's what's happening here. Because Biden is fundamentally weak domestically, he is projecting the same thing abroad. 
All these poll numbers tell all our geopolitical polls the same thing, which is no one trusts Biden. And when you combine that with where we we are with you know Afghanistan, where you had Biden betraying our various partners, where you had Americans being left behind in that country, where you had him saying basically he did not want America out and about in the world, you're projecting a form of weakness and potentially isolationism. Ironically, not a lot different than Trump. And so it's it's creating this moment abroad where America is perceived as weak and disinterested in what's happening. And what's happening is that that weakness and that pullback is being filled by our geopolitical foes, namely Russia and China. So the first thing you, you see people talking about is China's rattling its sabers over Taiwan. You have these these vague illusions that maybe an invasion would take place where people were talking about how they would handle that. Um Biden's going to be talking to Xi uh, about Taiwan and everything happening there. I don't really think there's going to be any, there's not a real threat of invasion right there. There's always the background idea that it could happen, but I don't believe China is on the verge of trying to do anything there. Uh, this is mainly coming out of where they are. I mean, you've heard me talk about ever you know the Evergrande liquidity crisis, the potential down downturn for the Chinese economy. All that's still on the table. There was a flare up this past week where people were trying to figure out whether or not Evergrande had actually managed to pay off any, some of their debtors. They did at the eleventh. I mean, literally the eleventh hour, they were able to pull together some cash to pay these off. Uh, but there are bigger payments coming up, and the broader real estate market in China is still suffering. And so you have these flashing warning signals where China has these bad things happening economically. And so when you have that happening, I don't take the the saber rattling over here about Taiwan quite as as seriously. I think you know we obviously have to support them, but it is not quite the same deal as what's happening with Russia. And what's happening with Russia is that they are currently building up their troops. They're currently nine, between ninety to 100,000 troops, Russian troops, along the Ukrainian border. And you've got Russia claiming that it doesn't have any intent to invade, but these are the same things that they've said for a long time. Um, if you go back in time, you look at, at the, the country of Georgia, you had, you had Russia invade then with a full air, land, cyberspace attacks all happening at the same time in Georgia. That happened in 2008. In 2014, you had the invasion in Crimea, which also involved Ukraine. And there's been this constant harassment of all the Baltic states for really the past decade, decade and a half, where Russia has launched numerous cyber attacks, shutting down infrastructure, things like electricity, the internet, TV, those sorts of things, all along their front, just being a constant pest and harassing these countries. And I think it's worth noting where a lot of this has taken place. So when the invasion of Georgia happened... Um, the U.S. was not able to do anything because that was in the middle of that was at the tail end of the George W. Bush administration, and where in a normal circumstance he would have acted in that kind of circumstance, he was unable to because we were in the middle of an economic meltdown, and not just a meltdown. He also had his hands full with Iraq and Afghanistan, and so you, Russia took that as their chance. They said, you know what? Let's test this out. Let's see how far we can get away with this, and they pretty much got away with whatever they wanted there. I believe to this day they're still violating the terms of a ceasefire that was signed over Georgia. And so, uh, you know, you had that weakness with Bush was unable to do anything and Vladimir Putin immediately stepped in and, 
and said, okay, let's do this. The same thing happened in 2014 over Crimea. You had a weakened, uh, you had a weak, much weaker Barack Obama. He was not going to do anything over Syria. He was not going to remove Bashar al-Assad in in Syria. And he didn't want to deal with the red lines. And you, you know, you had this mass exodus of all the of all these migrants out of Syria, causing the the flare up and the crisis there for a while in Europe. And Obama just didn't want to do anything. And so he was fundamentally weak there. He wanted to be the opposite of George W. Bush, who was active with Iraq and Afghanistan. And so Brock didn't step up to the plate there. He didn't do anything, and therefore Russia was able to invade pretty much without having any worries. And the one person who was constant in both of those things is Joe Biden. He was in the Senate in 08. He was in the White House in 2014. He since, you know, you had this weak moment with him over Afghanistan where he just, you know, he gave up and ran away, let the Taliban take over, and now we're taking orders from them, and our people are now under their, you know, under their mercy. And so you have Biden doing this now where he has these, you know, he's in a similar situation, kind of kind of like you have, you have Bush here where he has bad polling. He had the 2021 elections have shaked his party and they don't want to do anything for him. You also have allies who have no trust in us, especially after Afghanistan. NATO is weak in this area of the world right now because we have not been reinforcing them. You know, we had all these baits under Trump. And I do agree you need NATO to be pushing out their their money for their own support here because these threats are real. Uh, but we've got a NATO that's unprepared for this this moment in time. It is unprepared for Russia becoming belligerent and deciding it wants to invade one of these areas. Uh, and the other thing I want to, I think it's worth note here about Obama. I'm going over my notes here. Um, in 2016, he knew full well that the Russians were battling to some degree or another in the 2016 election. He knew that, and there was no actions taken. In fact, you don't see any sanctions or anything happen to that until after the election's over. And so uh, what Vladimir Putin knows is that he knows Biden's in a weak spot. He knows his time at the White House. He's not likely to do anything. So this is giving him pretty much free reign to do what he wants here. Um, you, you've got, you know, the other threat possibility here is you've got the, the potential meltdown with China here in their economy. So he's not going to have, a, Putin's not going to have a lot of influences pushing him to do anything other than what he just wants to do here. Everyone else is involved in other more serious things, at least to them. So the big questions here, uh, first, does Russia invade? Uh, that's probably the most primary thing, and and we just don't know what they're going to do. I would say it's likely it, c- it could happen here, and that's just looking back at the history here. We know what they did in Georgia. We know what they did in Crimea. It would not be beyond the pale for them to go after Ukraine, especially if you when after we had the protest in Ukraine back in 2014. Uh, Russia could claim that it wants to protect its people who are there. Uh, there was hints of that happening back in 2014, where Russia really wanted to do that then. They stepped back. They didn't do it. Um, but this would be a way for them to try to bring that country back in under their umbrella. I think that's the first major thing here. And, and really, this is just looking at Biden and his weakness and saying, okay, these countries are acting belligerent. What are the, some of the scenarios we have to deal with here? So the first one is Russia invading Ukraine. Uh, we'll get into some of the reasons why they might do that. And, and what are the goals here? Uh, but that's the first primary thing. And then the second one is how hard does China push in their negotiation with Biden, which are coming up either this week or next week when when Biden and Xi are going to meet. 
Um, I don't have any expectations really of, of, a, of an invasion of Taiwan. I know China would love to have that island. I know that they would love to have the South China Sea. Uh, but I don't see a true blue invasion being in the cards here just because that would be a little out of the character for, for China. Whereas, you know, for Russia here, it would not be out of character for them to step forward and do something like this. So in, in looking at Ukraine and just kind of thinking through the odds of whether or not Biden would do anything, uh, I, you know, I don't think he would actually do anything besides sanctioning Russia for bad behavior and then putting out these strongly, you know, strongly worded statements, expressing solidarity for the Ukrainian people and so on and so forth, because that's just what they do. This is kind of like, you know, when, when people were kidnapped by, by Boko Haram in Africa, we just got the Bring Back Our Girls hashtag campaign under the Obama administration. This is some of the same thoughts that we have now under the current administration. This is about all they have to offer. It's just rank weakness. It's, it's nothing that you want your country to do. Uh, and you're not, we're not going to get a lot of support from Europe on this thing when it comes to confronting Russia, because they're in a tight position. So you may have seen news stories. I mean, you may have even experienced it where we we're in kind of an energy crisis here where, you know, gas prices are up and there are shortages and some places there are even shortages of oil. Well, these types of shortages are even worse in Europe. And Europe is very heavily independent upon getting its oil from Russia. Extremely dependent, especially in Germany. They are very dependent upon having a working relationship with Russia because they cannot get their own energy independence. And so they, they need Russian oil. And so in the middle of this energy crisis, they really need to be able to keep the pipelines going because they need that resource. And, and Russia is just a key producer here. And so that's one of the reasons that it's, it's just it's beyond the pale that Joe Biden has done nothing to help support the U.S. energy markets and help us produce more oil because this is now creating a foreign policy crisis here where it's enabling our enemies. Because when you have these higher prices, you're allowing Russia to take in more funds and more money to fuel what they want because oil is more expensive, which is good for them. Also good for OPEC. If you want to weaken these groups, you've got to, you know, strengthen United States energy production. This is something the left fundamentally has not gotten in over a decade. It was the best part of the end of the Obama administration and into the Trump administration when we had fracking and we had these areas in the Dakotas and elsewhere where we were making a significant contribution to energy production worldwide. Uh, but... Now we have a presidency that is not interested in doing that at all and thinks it's a bad thing because he's kowtowing to the far left of his party, which he believes all of this is wrong. So uh, we're in turn, these types of power and energy vacuums are being filled by people like Russia, people like OPEC. And so Europe really needs this resource because they got to be able to heat their homes. You've got you know, cars, just all kinds of stuff. And that's going to make them weak in this thing. And you've got a weak Biden, you've got a weak Europe, and without the EU and with the United States here, you're not going to have a NATO response. So this gives Russia the leverage that it needs in this situation to act more uh, strongly than it otherwise would, because if it, even if it did decide to do this, that would probably cause the price of oil to go up even higher, which would profit them even more. That's just kind of how, unfortunately, these things go. So... I don't anticipate 
buying, sending in troops or doing anything like that. It'll just be, you know, maybe we send in some resources, some ammunition, some arms, things like that. But they're just going to get claim, you know, their tweets from from Anthony Blinken, uh, you know, the, the current uh, Secretary of State, talking about, you know, how much solidarity the U.S. has with Ukraine or, in, or Poland or any of these others. And that's just an empty thing to say to people who are under Russian influence. So that's sort of, you know, gaming out what could happen here. The other thing is, why would Russia want to do this? Uh, and the main thing is expanding their 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 sphere of influence here. Ukraine, in, in the time of the Soviet Union, they were within that sphere. In their, if you go back even further and look at pre-Soviet Union, you see Russia have claims to that area of the world, especially under the Tsars. So Putin is reaching back and claiming some of these prior glory times and trying to bring Russia back into these areas. Uh, in this case, you know, when you're talking about invasion, they may stay there, they may not. They may install a puppet government. Who knows what they decide to do there. The end goal is to bring this back into the Russian sphere of influence. Same with the Baltic states. Uh, the other thing that this does, more importantly to Russia and Putin, is that it pushes the United States out of the region and it brings Europe as a whole back into the sphere of influence of Russia because you essentially pull particularly Eastern Europe back more strongly into that, you know, Russia wants to call the shots there and that gives it more control of what's happening over the European continent. And we're in a key moment here. Uh, you had Georgia and and the constant harassment and all that stuff happening under a week of Obama administration. This is being timed out to occur right at a really weak moment for the Biden administration. I don't think that's, you know, I, I don't think that's an accident here. They're not dumb. And the other thing that's adding to this and contributing to everything is that you have the weakness that the United States displayed after Afghanistan because you had Biden ignoring the legitimate U.S. security interest in Afghanistan. He's, once the Taliban decided, you know what, we're just going to push through and take over the country, Biden backed off immediately. He didn't do anything. He didn't try to reestablish anything. He gave up. And so the country collapsed in a matter of days. And we were left with Nothing. We were, we were left with a humanitarian crisis because he backed out so quickly. So the, the lesson here, if you're, if you're watching this, if you're Putin, it's just, well, if we decide we want to make a new move, move fast, make your decision then. If we decide we want a puppet government, we can probably get a ceasefire after we've already done one, gotten what we wanted, and then we're fine. So what is likely to happen here is Putin's going to make a move. Biden will be lit and his administration will be left flat-footed and scrambling. They'll claim some kind of ceasefire or whatever ends up happening will be a victory for them, even though because they are weak, they can, they, 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 they're not going to do anything here. So that's, that's where we are. That's why these poll numbers matter. It's not just elections. I mean, obviously, you know, if you, if you listen to me at any, any point of time, you know that I, I like talking about elections and thinking about them through and all the data. But polls and elections have other consequences too. They indicate whether or not an administration and its policy have strength in between weak poll numbers, weak election results, inflation really driving up the, the prices for everyone and just everyone having a hard time right now, this is the time that you would look at the United States and say, okay, they're weak. If I wanted to go deal with Ukraine or any part of this Eastern Europe stuff, now is the time to act if you're Vladimir Putin. So this is a dangerous moment. 
it's a pretty dangerous moment. Um, the thing you need to watch here, uh, watch for reports to come out about cyber attacks in, in Ukraine and also along just in Eastern Europe in general. If those flare up because, you know, what, what happened in Georgia and what happened in some, some of these other places in Crimea, Russia will launch these large-scale cyber attacks that effectively shut down the Internet, shut down communications, electricity, all that kinds of things. And the country, in a country, the target country is left blind. Uh, so if that starts happening more and more commonly here as we head into winter, that's going to tell you, give you a message about what it could be coming here. Uh, so between that and, and whether or not Biden's weakness here, whether that continues, and every indication says that it will, that's going to dictate a lot of what happens moving forward. So that's all I've really got for today's show. Uh, keep you know watching all those numbers. Keep watching what Russia does. That'll tell you a lot. Uh, if you've got questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the content information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So make sure you sign up before that and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked it and enjoyed it, make sure to send those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.